Welcome to Working Dog Radio, broadcasting the bite. Everybody, this episode of Working Dog Radio is brought to you in part by our friends at Ray Allen Manufacturing. Everything you need for dogs, whether it's working dogs, pet dogs, sport, anything, rayallen.com, the best in the business. Uh, Check them out. We got a discount code, Working Dog Radio, for 10% off. Another one of our favorite partnerships is with the one and only Dog Train. These guys are producing some amazing tools in the dog training world. Everything from e-collars, GPS tracking, ball training, it was electronics, and it goes on dogs. Go to Dogtra. They're revolutionizing the way you communicate with your dog. Head them up at dogtra.com. Use the discount code WDR10 for 10% off a single item over 200 bucks. The biggest and baddest conference in canine anywhere in the United States is HITS. Every year, each and every year, hundreds and hundreds of vendors, thousands of attendees, the best instructors around. It got moved because of COVID. Um, it's going to be July 7th through the 9th in 2021. Check it out. Hits, letter K number nine dot net to get signed up. You can't go wrong. Hits K nine dot net. Let's see you there next year. Yeah. Speaking of some guys that are going to be there next year, the kinetic dog food guys, fueling a working dog can be tough, but they need high quality food to give them the energy and the nutrients that require they, that they require for the work that we ask them to do. Kinetic dog food is a great balance of healthy meats and grains and is specifically made for working and sporting dogs. Be sure to hit them up at kineticdogfood.com. Easily, hands down, the best product we've ever represented on this podcast is Quick Derm by Vet Care. Ted and I use it in the kennel on our dogs when they get goofy injuries and ourselves when we also get goofy in- injuries. They have a discount code for us. 10WDR for 10% off your first order. Check them out at vetcare.us. All right, everybody, Working Dog Radio, we are back. Uh, video on YouTube. Uh, if you're listening to this, awesome. Thank you. Um, but be sure if you want, go to YouTube, Working Dog Radio, and um, subscribe and uh, follow us on there. These are pretty funny. We're putting, um, We'll probably put some blooper reels on by now. We put clips on there. We a couple of funny things have happened in the last couple of episodes. We've uh, this is the third episode in three days that we recorded. So it, they come, you know, this one. What's today? Yeah, December eighteenth. This all run together. Yeah, it's eighteenth. We're recording this, but the episode this episode comes out uh, the thirteenth of January. So uh, you probably saw some of the blooper stuff in there, but it's good time. Um, uh, my name is Eric Stanbro coming to you from uh, Canton, Ohio. It is the frozen tundra here today. Gray as shit and snow everywhere. I, I don't, you know, that's the thing. I, I we sometimes we sound like old people when like all we talk about is the weather in the beginning of these things. But the gray here in the winter is the killer. The snow is not. It's not really the winters aren't that bad here. It's the 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 fact that the sun just goes away. Like we don't even know what that actually is. So there's days I come out and it's like four degrees out, but the sun's out. I'm like, cool. But I did stop at a um, gas station this morning and there was a dude, it was 24 degrees. He had a t-shirt and shorts. And I I looked at him, I go, I like it. I go, it's always summer if you dress like it. And he's like, (laughs) thumbs up, walked out. (laughs) And it was with me always from uh, Tulsa, Oklahoma is Ted Summers. Ted, what is going on over there? Uh man, handler school for my the dude from Indiana still. He's uh we're rocking and rolling. We worked out all day today uh with Jesse, uh the uh the little Malinois. He is rocking and rolling. Um I've got another five five, I don't even know what day it is. Yeah, like five weeks with him. Um so 
by the time he's done, uh, they are going to be a rocking team. They're going to go back to that Central Indiana Canine Association, uh, which has hosted HRD before. Uh, fantastic group of guys, large, um, large group, several large uh, departments. Um, you know, Hendricks County is the uh, the county that hosted Kyle. He's a great guy, great great trainer, uh, good handler. Is hosted stuff there for decoy and stuff. So uh, yeah, Chris is going to go back with Jesse, and they're going to be. He's got a nice dog for sure, man. He, uh, he's a good dog. He's definitely going to find dope and bite fools. That's for damn sure. Mm. <laughs> so, um, you know, sometimes we have guests on the show quite often that aren't directly like canine handlers. Um, we've had guys on, like we had Jack on and Jack was a canine handler back in the day on LAPD, but he's really known for his tactical air support and he's known for his perimeter and containment stuff. Probably one of the best in the country, which is why we had him on um we had the wildlife guy on pete um, a couple episodes ago obviously not a dog guy not even in law enforcement and was a fantastic um interview uh and show about um dealing with uh the ecology side and working dogs helping with anti-poaching and stuff in africa and in southeast asia so canine is one of those weird things in law enforcement in the united states where especially if you're a dual purpose handler you have to be good at a lot of skill sets um, you know, Eric and I say all the time that you're a canine handler first and you're, 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 a, you're a cop first and you're a canine handler second. I constantly have to remind a lot of guys in school that I'm like, you still have to be a police officer, right? So because of that, um, you know, guys come to a, a handler school like I get going on now, right? And so Chris is going to go back to his department and thankfully he's got four or five other dudes there that handle dual purpose dogs. And but if you go back to a sheriff's department that has no dog program whatsoever, has no tracking program whatsoever, you know, you go through a six week school for the dog and you're looked at as kind of like the subject matter expert for tracking. And you're like, well, I mean, I know how to run the dog. So um, our guest tonight um, is a sheriff's deputy here locally um, where I live and started now at the National Association of Law Enforcement Trackers um, and owns a company called Spearpoint uh, that does quite a bit of training for what I would consider advanced stuff for law enforcement military. Um, and is probably one of the best man trackers without a dog in the country. So I hope what we get tonight is some information that can help uh, the whole Swiss army aspect of, uh, being a canine handler. You got to be good at finding dope. You've got to be good at finding people. You've got to be good at use of force. You got to be good at all these random ass skill sets. Uh, so with that, we've got Mick Bonet on from Tulsa County Sheriff's office. Mick, how are you? I'm doing good. How about so? We are doing great. So you're like across town for me, even though we're on, <laughs> on cameras, but this is how we got to do the recording. So it is what it is. So give us, um, a little bit of your background and how you became so good at uh, hide and seek? Uh, I actually got introduced to tracking by my grandfather in Southeast Texas. Uh, we had the big thicket national preserve down there and it was natural to, to get into tracking. It's almost a sandbox in some parts of the bayou. So he introduced me to, to animal tracking when I was about 12 years old and it led into search and rescue tracking down there because people would go deep in that big thicket all the time and get lost. And I ended up taking that, that training into uh, the military world. I listened to the Army in 96 and ended up uh, exploring really the counter-tracking side of tracking where it became very important not to leave sign uh, with the type of unit I was with uh, moving into an environment. 
Um, I'm sure we're all familiar with uh, Operation Red Wing, uh, the Lone Survivor movie. And yep. a backstory of that was they got tracked from their drop-in point. And it was a, a, a big uh, OPSEC deal as far as getting that training out to people. So that's where I kind of came into uh, the counter-tracking side of things. Got introduced to Davis Goddolin and went through the combat tracking course down in Fort Huachuca, Arizona. And what he did is he refined that the, the micro tracking, so to speak, is what we call the step-by-step -step of the search and rescue approach uh, to more of that macro or aggressive type tracking to close the time distance gap. Uh, ended up joining the uh, Tulsa Sheriff's Office in 2005, been here 15 years and some change. And eventually an opportunity was presented to show them how tracking could be used in a law enforcement world. Uh, and it was actually a, a canine failure that day that created that opportunity for me. Uh, I'm a big fan of canine. I believe in them 100%. Uh, it's only a, been a few uh, instances like that where uh, the canine lost track, but again, it opened that doorway for me. And when they saw that tracking could be used, um, they ended up giving me more and more support for tracking. Uh, at that time, I was a member of SWAT and led the sniper team for 10 years. And they ended up calling me as a, so the way we designed the tech team at that time is if we didn't meet full SWAT criteria activation or high-risk warrants, and because they looked at this as a special skill set, uh, we created some structure similar to the military by creating special mission units within our SWAT team. And what that allowed other agencies to do is to uh, request assistance from our team in order to apply these skill sets where it wasn't a full SWAT criteria activation. However, they needed skill sets from the team. And the call volume went up so much so that when our new sheriff and undersheriff came in, they elected to separate uh, the trackers from SWAT. Uh, maintain a membership with SWAT. However, they wanted to create a dedicated tracking team. Um, so we ended up uh, founding in 2017, or excuse me, activating in 2017, the Tactical Tracking Reconnaissance Unit for the Sheriff's Office, we call TTU, or Tactical Tracking Unit for short, uh, where we have uh, several responsibilities from search and rescue to manhunt tracking, um, covert rules, surveillance, uh, long-range reconnaissance, which we do with the tribes when we're looking for uh, felons or structures and, and deep wooded areas. Uh, and it's just grown from there where we got our separate budget so much so that I eventually took the team leader role for the team and resigned from SWAT. Wow. Okay. Uh, talk about an amazing niche. So tell us uh, what was the failure with the dog? So we had an armed robbery out in West Tulsa County, uh, 77th and page. It was late at night, about 22, 2300 at night towards the end of shift. And uh, two armed robberies hit the store. They took off through. It's kind of a mix of, if you are familiar with that area, those who are not this side, uh, we have a mixed stretch of wood line that crosses over in an urban area, then back to a wood line, so on and so forth. So it's kind of a mix of rural and urban. Um, so naturally, there were tracking sign traps available. However, after I told the sergeant who uh, ran the shift at that time that, hey, I can track these guys, let me go, because we happen to be fairly close when that happened. They asked me to hold the scene uh, and wait for canine from a neighboring agency, uh, Tulsa Police Department. I uh, waited about an hour for the canine, to get, the canine to get on scene. And the canine ended up running off on different trails back and forth, um, which was a, a contradiction to the sign line that I had pointing to, you know, a destination across this highway. Because uh, they ran north across from, if anyone were to take the time to pull this up, uh, 7700 Charles Page Boulevard in Sand Springs, or correction, I guess it's be Tulsa. You'll see a convenience store there, and directly north northwest is where they ran, almost as a crow flies in their skate path. Um, so when the dog crossed over, what you'll see is a bike trail or Katy trail there. It shot immediately to the west and then back to the east, did this several times. 
And the canine handler advised, well, he probably got into um, a vehicle that they staged for extract, which was possible. Um, however, before they picked up the scene and the dog handler ended up clearing after that, uh, he did advise us that dog had been running since uh, seven that morning and he had been uh, going to multiple calls throughout the shift. Uh, I'm not sure if that was to uh, account for the time frame or um, that there wasn't a positive hit on that. Again, this is going to fall into your area of expertise as opposed to mine. But I asked the sergeant on scene if he would keep all of the people in place and let me at least check the opposite side of the highway to see if they happen to come out because there was good medium over there. Uh, terrain that could, uh, I mean, even my, my 13-year-old daughter could have picked up tracks on because you had a sand trap. And uh, sure enough, I got to the other side and I found their tracks in that sand trap where you could not only see they cross over the highway, but they immediately did an about face 180 degree turn and drop down to the ground, which probably was in response to officers who were flying past them on the highway. They wouldn't have seen them because of where they're at. Um, but it was uh, very good action indicators of, of these guys being in a panic state. So I continue to track these guys up to the, uh, the playground where they're going. And they had stripped the outer layer of their clothing, which is normal for, you know, armed robbers to strip your layers so fast that they forgot to take the cash that they just taken out yeah. of the pockets of the exterior pants. We got all the money back. Uh, now, in hindsight, that's where I would have preferred to have a canine. Uh, if they would allow me to track and establish that track line up to at that time where they went was called Gable Hills Apartments. So it was an apartment complex. Um, it went into an urban track, urban track where there was no medium or any kind of terrain that I could use because I can't work. You know, I'm not a magician. I have to have some type of terrain available. Um, we do establish likely lines. We can cast pretty far. The furthest I've gone without confirmation is 300 yards before I got confirmation. So it's possible. Uh, but in this case, it was more practical for a dog to pick up that, that raft scent or whatever type scent you would use. And uh, I never picked them up after that. We did end up uh, finding out who they were. They dropped a handkerchief along that trail that was picked up during the trek, and we had a hidden CODIS. So we're able to get DNA off of that. Um, however, if we're talking about the speed of an operation, um, they should immediately allow the trackers, the assets they had on scene to punch out and track. And then as soon as K-9 got up there to one of two things, either pull the tra the visual trackers back, allow the K-9 to go forward or use that K-9 as a resource in a drag or in tow until the tracker lost that sign to pick it up. Um, but that particular operation changed everything and uh, was the one of two major tracking cases that involved K-9 that uh, change the the overall support of the entire office towards man trackers today. So prior to that, had you been like putting, you know, giving them all the uh, like, hey, we should be doing this. Here's some what I do. Here's my experience. And they're, they're telling you. So prior to that, uh, I was using tracking in investigative means. So as far as the sheriff office goes, we we will bring out criminal investigators if they're necessary for it. Um, different types of scenes, DOAs were required to. A lot of cases they will allow us to investigate. So that actually gave me a lot of opportunity to use track and sign uh, on cases, burglary cases I've recovered, um, tools and other type things. You know, the classic, someone broke in my house. I go and inspect the house and I find the tracks and it turned out to be the neighbor who broke in his house and we got confirmation. So we had several cases like that that lined up that they were in support of. However, a case like this where, all right, we don't have any major wooded environment in the area, mostly urban and suburban environment, that really doesn't have a place here. So it was more about showing, hey, this tracking can work in non-wooded environments um, that really changed the, the attitude towards it. Yeah. So <clears throat> one of the things that we talk about a lot, like in the difference with tactical tracking and patrol tracking, that's one thing that we 
we deal with a lot on with a lot of the handlers during handler schools and during the HRD seminars and then during some of the SWOT integration seminars. So, you know, talk a little bit about the setup and the difference between what you would consider like a tactical track as you run the TTU for TCSO. Um, and you talked about how it started and whatever else, but then talk about what we would consider like a patrol track for a, like an ideal setup for a canine is somebody bails on foot out of a car and they're there almost immediately. They run, you know, you've got Graham versus Connor checked off the list. So, you know, that use of force is clean and you're, you know, you're clear to bite for the most part. And like the decision is, you know, we just got to go find him. And they, the, you know, what we teach, like Eric and I teach a lot of times is speed is your friend, especially when somebody is running right, right then. And you are that close on a lot of times you're looking for people that have been out there for a second and may not have fresh signs. I mean, um, there's all kinds of claims of dogs being able to pick up, you know, tracks at like 24 and 48 hours old. And people are going to hear this and freak out. I just, that's not real. I don't know that that's true. I don't, I have never seen personally seen a dog that has been able to track something that's two days old. Um, that's been contaminated. It's been some kind of something that is there. Now the physical indicators for you visual guys are still there, but um, for canine, um, the, what the dogs are taught to find is generally degraded to the point where it's not going to be relevant. So talk a little bit about the difference between taxable tracking and what you would consider patrol tracking. Okay. Our approach to this, uh, and I know there's a lot of schools out there teaching tactical tracking is a four or excuse me, a full element. Um, that's typically based on what they call the Rhodesian style of tracking, Rhodesian SAS, uh, which is a major TTP tactic technique and procedure brought over from David Scott Donnellan. Uh, I do know there are other people, big names out there who brought over tracking and I'm not going to get into uh, what came first, a chicken or egg, as far as uh, who brought the material over. Um, but I know most of the schools look at tactical tracking as a, as a full four to five man element. Uh, and that's based off of that Rhodesian Y. We call it Rhodesian Y. Um, I, I know there's other units or agencies that have used it in the past as well. Um, but it's no more than we have to, in search and rescue tracking, we we stick to a, we got a tracker out front, picture the wedge. You've got support elements to the flank and to the sides. And that's, that's something that's been pushed for a long time from people like Jack Kearney, Ab Taylor from Border Patrol. They were very successful in using that. The problem you have with that and the reason we ended up with an evolution over in a tactical tracking is that we cannot help it when we're dedicated to a track, we get sucked into that, that ground game. Now there's sign and error, there's techniques we teach to try to break the habit of staring at the ground, um, but it tends to happen. We get pulled into that, that micro world um, because we're looking for sign and things that are on the ground. And so as a result of that, if you have that particular man in a high risk type of track or they could potentially be shot at on point, uh, he's not going to maintain situational awareness. The argument is, well, you have guys just behind him looking forward. But as you'll, you know, we learned in room clearing, there's angles all over the place in an urban environment. It's 10 times that in a rural or woodland environment. So if we have any lead whatsoever, we're not looking out in that environment as we expose different terrain or different dead space, we're available to be shot at or we're at risk. So the way we counter that by putting security elements in front of them while also minimizing track contamination is we split the responsibility of that point position. As a result, it takes the shape of a Y. Um, so for more, most instances, when we're going to do a Y, we have two flank security to the front of that line split on both sides of what we believe to be the track line. Tracker's on track. 
we're going to end up with a team leader controller behind us. Now, a dedicated team that has additional support will have uh, rear security. A full team, like the tactical tracking unit, uh, like the Ranger Recon with Texas Rangers, like the U.S. Marshal Scout Tracker units, will actually maintain another team in tow, usually about 50 to 100 yards behind them. That's your tactical team that has other type of assets they can bring to bear if necessary. Um, that's a full team of what we consider tactical tracking. Now, with canine integration, of course, you can get to three to four. But for us, if it's a full tactical track sticking to that Rhodesian methodology, then we have a minimum of four people. I'm not a big believer in having over five uh, if we're on a high-risk track because the more people we add to the mix, the more signatures, things that we're going to generate that are going to compromise our presence as well. So I, I want four, of my, four to five of my sneakiest guys, preferably four the fifth guy is just going to add rear security and it takes an area of responsibility off of the team leader to the rear now that's a full team that's not practical for most agencies to have that kind of support uh, i've trained tulsa pd sand springs pd all the agencies in this area with the idea initially before the tactical tracking unit was activated that if we're in their particular jurisdiction i can call these guys up they're tactical tracking certified they can integrate with us and then boom through multi-jurisdictional or mou we're able to punch forward in a full team rarely has that able has that happened the way that we plan so if we're in a full dynamic gear i consider that tactical tracking Patrol tracking, which is what tends to happen more times than not, is when we're dealing with less than four for us. Um, now, when we're getting into less than four, we can't maintain the same type of tactical intervals that we would in Rhodesia because of space, uh, responsibility in the track, and so on and so forth. So what we do is we have to reel our guys in. Again, we're talking about three and less. Uh, we don't believe in tracking by yourself. Two 180s make the 360 and 540 up. So we have 100, 180 degrees on top of our 360 degree perimeter that's important. So that's a lot of responsibilities just for two guys. Um, so best case three. Three is what we usually end up with on patrol. That's why we tend to use that or refer to that as a patrol track. Now that's a different type of tracking mindset. We do not try dynamic type tracking. And I say that because I compare it to room clearing. For me, Rhodesian four to five man tracking is what I consider dynamic room clearing or dynamic tracking. We're able to maintain a higher speed. Uh, we're able to project different lines of travel, send our track support element, our, our team in tow, to cut for more sign along that path. That's how we get real big gains is by working those leapfrogs, other type of tactics to close that time distance gap. We don't have that privilege or that, that ability to do that in a three-man or less in that patrol tracker. So we do what's called the SAS, Special Air Service Track Pursuit Drill. We only call it the SAS drill because that's where the 22nd Regiment, when they came and trained our initial combat tracking unit, in Vietnam, that was the style of tracking tall thin. Um, it wasn't the Rhodesian style, it was that track pursuit drill style. Uh, and there's different type of approaches to it. There's a five step, there's a seven step, but essentially what's happening in the track pursuit drill, a patrol track case where we're talking about one, two, or three, again, we're not a big fan of one, but it can be done, is we're working through this process that when I'm on the ground, I'm actually looking for spore. I scan my environment, security first, then spore. As I rise back up off the ground, I'm, ad I'm advising my guys through my body language because we're trying not to talk, trying to maintain that silence is golden, that I'm ready to step out. When I move forward, I'm moving forward as a scout. So that's the patrol track style of tracking. I liken it to deliberate and room clearing because it's a little bit slower, a little bit, a little bit more methodical. I can't move as fast. So the two primary operational types we're talking about moving to close the time distance gap is that 
one to three man SAS tractor suit drill or the four to five man Rhodesian drill. Of course, it can be even higher than that if you have track support. Uh, the other style was investigative tracking. And that's typically, that's the only time you're gonna catch me tracking by myself, but that's because we know it's a, a cold scene. We've ensured it's a cold scene, meaning that we no longer have that threat in the environment as opposed to an active or a hot scene. So as a result of that, the security is not as big as a priority. Now I'm still gonna have guys on the crime scene like that maintaining containment, um, but we're not looking at that as an active track. So for law enforcement, we have investigative tracking, which is the only time I'll, I'll approve a solo. We have the patrol tracking, which is the SAS style, one to three men. Again, for us, it's gonna be two to three. Rhodesian, four to five and up. And then we have search and rescue. And search and rescue, we treat two different ways. And the, the traditional manner of working the wedge for cases like a child where I don't want someone in front of me that I don't trust or they don't have the proper training um, to sometimes we actually run that Y um, just like we were on a high risk track. And the reason for that, I've actually been brought out to track some search and rescue cases. This guy's lost and come to find out about halfway in it. Oh, he's actually wanting to go out in the woods and shoot himself. And we find mm -hmm. that information out about halfway oh, in that's as a result, different. it changes <laughs> yeah. things. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that's it's, way different. It, yeah. So in that case, the first time that's happened three times to me now, the first time that happened, we went out there under a, an, an SAS type drill working SAS, or excuse me, a search and rescue mindset, and then come to find out he's armed. And now I didn't bring the proper resources that I need. So that changed how we did things once we activated our tactical tracking unit, where we mandate that if you're going out a search and rescue track, we handled the search and rescue questionnaire process with the person if we can. And we always assume the guy is going to end up being armed and this is a, a suicide type situation. So I'm prepared for contact and apprehension need be. So I have a million questions, of course, because this is awesome. So um, now <laughs> one of the things we talk about uh, at canine all the time is one of the things that's important for the canine guys is perimeter containment. And the biggest thing we have is we have problems with guys on patrol not staying where they're supposed to be, not doing what they're supposed to do. Because I tell them all this. If I do a robbery or burglary, say, and I've got about 15 minutes on you, 20 minutes by the time you show up with your dog, maybe 10, 15 minutes. If I keep moving and don't go to ground, you won't catch me with the dog. Um, because you got to get out, got to get your dog. You're tracking. You're, you're going X amount of speed. Usually guys track with maybe one, two guys. But if I keep going and we need them to go to ground. So when you guys are going out there on that type of say it's a pretty big environment where you're at and you have your um your why and everything do you use containment to push the guy hopefully back towards you or no it, it depends on what resources are already out there if i have full control of the scene and if they call us out for track they will turn it over to us um, i integrate drone support from obn Oklahoma Bureau of Narcotics supports us with Matrice 210, so we have thermal on top of it. So it's just like a, a strategy of a chopper, for instance. You know, we can use a spotlight in the air. The, the bad guy thinks we're looking in a certain direction. We're actually scanning thermal in the opposite direction. Um, so we're doing some of that with our drones, but that's something that's in play for other type of strategies. I mean, we're, we're not quite into. With containment, we've trained enough of our guys that they're track aware. Um, we don't look at that as containment, though. We're looking for terrain features for cross points. Um, if we're talking about a woodland environment, it's difficult for them to lock down, lock down an entire grid. Um, we could play the game of I have him within this grid, but if, if I haven't assumed that he's outside of containment, 
entertainment, then the time distance gap is growing and it's growing and it's growing. So my initial priority isn't so much on the containment side. If I'm showing up for track, it's to establish a direction of travel. So we go out there, we initially kick out our, our guys in security to protect the guy who's running ICP or additional commencement point procedures. All that is is a type of pattern that we use to establish, all right, here's where he's at. Here's the initial direction of, of flight. Once we have that, the more I crumb breadcrumbs is just illustration I like to, to bring into my classes that I pick up, the more the picture I'm going to see. I, I correction, let's approach from dot to dot. So it's like the dot to dot game. The guys we leave or as we move, we leave breadcrumbs behind, obviously. We leave 2,112 opportunities of evidence within a mile based off of a 30 inch stride. So that's our breadcrumb trail. But the more dots that I pick up on a scene, the more picture that's created. So as I'm tracking a guy from that ICP or that initial commencement point, I'm establishing a more and more refined section. That's where I would actually send my guys. So it's not so much of I'm expecting them to effectively contain an area. It's that I want guys on the outskirts that are at least track aware, preferably my secondary team, the tactical tracking unit, as they're showing up to a scene, ready not to come to my spot, but to respond to a, a cast spot, for instance. So if I have enough tracks, we we'll actually work off of azimuth. You can work off north, east, southeast, so on and so forth. We prefer to work in azimuth with the topographic map because we can be more refined on potential cross points. So as I'm providing that refined intel to them, they're pushing off based off of that time distance gap. We run certain formulas. So if I know this guy's been gone for you know, 10, 15, 30 minutes, they'll run down the scale of what kind of terrain we're dealing with, what kind of equipment or loadout he's carrying, and that gives them potential projection points. So they'll actually go beyond that point based off of my direction of travel I'm providing, looking for confirmation. So as they scan along track traps, sign traps, whatever type of medium they can find that intersect or are perpendicular and in, in path with where I'm giving them that information, they get confirmation they immediately take over as a primary track team. They step off from there. I pick up. We'll still mark the spot. I still have to consider he may have dropped something between point A and point D, for instance. We may have to backtrack that later and work it in a micro track or accounting for every track. Right now, I don't care about those single tracks. All I care about is closing the gap, and you have to be aggressive with that. If you're not aggressive and the guy's constantly moving, like you said, you're never going to catch him. So we have to account for that lost time. So instead of focusing on containment, I'm focusing on projecting a path for trained people to go pick it up, to reacquire it, and then for me to punch off the path off of refined information they're giving me, and you end up with that leapfrog effect. If it gets to the point that we have bound past him, we can't find any type of sign, there's a possibility, and we can, in some cases, we have to treat it like this, that he's now in between us. If that's the case, it's not so much containment. Uh, I kind of treat it like a deer run. You get an ambush position. There's different type of ambush positions we use based off terrain, but essentially what we're trying to do at that point is establish a hammer and anvil. That's an incredible answer. So uh, everybody, is, hopefully they're taking notes. That's a, that's an answer right there that every, that's going to be replayed. Like people are going to rewind it and listen to what you said. Um, so yeah. I'm an old movie buff, Tommy Lee Jones. He's out in the woods. He says a human being travels X amount. Is there a kind of a average formula you can plug into how much uh, a person can ground they can cover in a certain amount of time typically? Yeah, so NATO actually produced a, a study on that that we issue out. Uh, now, what we have found with that is it's based off of how much load they're carrying, what type of terrain they're dealing with, what their age category is. 
Um, the problem we've seen with the numbers, and unfortunately, it's all a uh, metric. You got to convert it. Uh, but don't worry, we'll hook the Ted up with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, we want some <laughs> conversion factors, but it, it wasn't. Yeah, pain. I got it. But the, the problem with that is that uh, we have found that based off the culture they're studying, it does create some differences. We tend to be a faster paced society in, in the United States compared to where some of those numbers came from. So the average for them, they say an average walking person on that chart is 24 to 25 inches. We're on an average of 28 to 32 inches. And I think it's just because our society was fast paced, but that does make a difference for us when we're doing track. So we have graph information presented to us, but what we've begun to done, uh, do over the past couple of years is create average numbers that we have seen. Now, the military has put out some information before. I've tested it. Most of it is crap. Uh, the problem is they regurgitate information over the years. They're okay. pulling stuff from the, um, anyhow, so it, that information has just been pulled and, and reprinted over and over and over. And people take it as gospel without testing it, which is what most people's issues are. They're not getting out there and generating their own dirt time. Um, so it's not going to be accurate either. However, there are specific numbers we have found. It is not an easy answer because your age, your health, the terrain, and your loadout are going to dictate that. Um, but we do have that broken down. I will be happy to make that available for any of you guys uh, as far as on the canine side of things. One of the things we talk about um, when we're, if we get to an agency that has a couple dogs, they can get out there. They'll do, um, they don't necessarily, they don't do leapfrogging. They track until the dog is fatigued and then they bring the next dog up and go from there. Do you guys have, um, if you're out in your Y and you're going, do you have um, kind of a, a standard where you're looking for sign where you're, you can tell at X amount of time, my eyes are getting fatigued to where I'm not as sharp and the next guy moves up or is, or is it just, does it go that far? Okay, so good question. The longest track I've done on duty is six miles long. Um, and that was actually for Creek County Sheriff's Office, a neighboring uh, sheriff's office. Unfortunately, they brought me in three days after the fact, and the, the man was deceased uh, because of the temperatures, everything else. But uh, as far as long range, six miles, that was, we were pushing triple digits on heat that day and you would fatigue out faster. So mm-hmm. one of the requirements we have to be within the tactical tracking unit, and this is a standard uh, for any type of tactical tracking school. Again, when I say tactical tracking, I'm referring to that four or five man dedicated element is everyone is required to be trained trackers. So we are able and quite frequently will uh, shuffle guys around as we see that they're, if they're fatiguing. Uh, and it's one of those cases of just like the old Rogers Ranger standing orders, you, you never lie to another Ranger. It's the same deal with us. We have a team leader whose job is to, to look at that tracker's performance, see if there's anything degrading, so on and so forth. But as trackers within the unit, we also expect 100% honesty from our guys. If they don't have it, if they're if their mind's not in it, um, I get migraines, migraines are my kryptonite. I've got to carry migraine medicine as I get out there. If I get a migraine that day, because it's just one of those things that can affect my visual acuity, I'm not going to have it. And I've got to tell the guys that, hey, you're going to have to put me in another position. If I don't have a migraine, uh, just because one, I'm passionate about this, been doing it a while, uh, I'm our two-legged bloodhound. I get on the trail, it's very hard to throw me, unless we're dealing with something with time and distance. You know, we got to play with those type of uh, uh, closing the gap of strategy-wise. Um, but my point in saying that is if I know I'm not in it or in the zone, I need to move another guy in. I'm unable to do that unless everyone within our team is a, a skill tracker and has performed, shown up performance standards, and which they have to do um, quarterly as far as what the unit goes. Uh, so just like a dog, if the dog's going to lose and they, they rotate up, it's the same thing for us. If I'm losing the trail, I'm fatigued or anything else is happening, maybe I'm just getting worn out. We'll rotate the trackers. If I have my secondary train, my secondary team, Bravo, is in 
toe, which typically is going to be in leapfrog or forward of that anyhow. But if they happen to be behind me, we're not in a situation where they're forward, we can rotate an entire team up as well. So uh, we are real big into that, and it's very important that you stay acute and in that zone for that particular track. If you got to pull the guy or the guy is not showing that performance, he's going to step down. Uh, and that's very important to us, that honesty. One of the things you mentioned that was uh, that stood out to me that happens to my guys all the time and I train them <laughs> to deal with this routinely is making sure you have, like you were calling the ICP, like the step-off point, like where that is and we have direction of travel and we have everything else. Um, all too often, canine handlers um, are not the first guys there and tactical trackers aren't either. And they're given information um, based on direction of travel, what they look like, what they were carrying, this, that, and the other. Um, in the canine side, we also talk a lot about Graham versus Connor, like what the threat conditions are on the second prong, like how if it's imminent or immediate threat, if there's any of these other number of factors that determine how fast or not fast they're going to track, if they're what they're going to do. But one thing you did mention that was extremely important is like having people that understand how it works because all too often I've got body cam footage from guys, our guys locally, that have been working with dudes and they're like, stop walk, stop looking at the dog. Like look for bad guys. Like stop. Look, I'll tell you when we're getting close and it's in a patrol track where they're trying to close time and distance very, very fast. And it's an extremely fresh track. And you know, they may have containment on the backside. And like you said, they're pushing them into it. Um, one thing you did mention too, that's really good. We had a star handler on from Eric, where was she from San Bernardino County? I think. Yeah. Out in California. Yeah. yeah. yeah largest County in the country. Um, where they're tracking, obviously, you know, non-criminals, um, but they they will often leapfrog. They're doing the method that you talk about. We ran a track like that in a scenario for our guys here in Tulsa where um, I set it up, and it's an urban track where they're tracking through neighborhoods like right by the kennel, and all of a sudden they get traffic in on the radio where dude was seen running a tangential distance away from the track that we're on they have to go back load the dog up go to the next icp and then recast on the same motor and it was an interesting exercise because i most of my handlers have said that has happened to me i can't tell you how many times like you know several of my guys were like oh that's happened to me a lot and i think guys listening to this will happen to a lot too because you know most police departments in the country, I think the average police department now is like in the 20s for size, like, you know, I mean, like units are like 25 to 27. I don't remember what the number is. It's fairly small. It's not a large unit. TCSO is a fairly large department. Uh, it's one of the 50 largest uh, sheriff's offices in the country. Um, so a lot of canine handlers are canine handlers and those guys are put into positions of being multi-purpose dudes and they end up working with whoever's there whether it's fish and wildlife troopers people that may not be like clued in on the dog or even tracking at all um so it's they might not be you well, know well fuck yeah there's that Old leash, close are. your eyes no my guys are but <laughs> yeah so it's an interesting uh it's interesting you say that so what uh before we take a break like where do you feel like um canine handlers are probably going to take the most out of what we're talking about here in terms of um, an average call most of the time, especially with dual purpose dogs. Um, and Eric and I are big on this because of we're, we're police dog vendors. Um, I fundamentally don't believe in training a law enforcement dog 
uh, dual purpose law enforcement dog, single purpose tracking is fine, but law enforcement, dual purpose, like narcotics, and then tracking and apprehension. I fundamentally do not want to train a dog that tracks that will not bite. And it's because they are put in situations where they're asked to track with people that are not experienced. They're not whatever. So I can do all the good training and get all the good training for the handler and everything else. But at the end of the day, and they're going to find people if it's a fresh track. And most of those guys are called to or scenes or called to um, situations where um, use of force through Graham is, is warranted. Um, a bite is definitely warranted. Use of force for detainment and arrest is warranted. And that has to happen. Um, they have to go to jail and it has to happen then. And what you're talking about requires, there is a lot of resources involved in that. Um, so in a resource austere environment or department, what advice do you have for canine guys? That's a loaded question. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, I, <laughs> you first, you first met Ted, right? It's not the first time, right? Yeah. So are we talking about tactics wise or assets wise or working together um, integration wise? Cause each of those could have a different response uh, where I'd want to take it. You can, you can hit on each one. I mean, I, I that's fine. Yeah. Hit on each one. So I believe trackers, visual trackers. Well, let me not jump to that one first. Let me jump to the first. I believe all handlers should be trained as visual trackers. I think it would benefit uh, handlers. Now, I've worked with through Spearpoint uh, some task forces down in Southeast Oklahoma. They were integrating canine into tracking. They're trying to do both. Now, one of the things that the agencies down there are doing, uh, we will not do up here, is even for high-risk tracks, they were using firefighters that were in this task force because uh, they were going through NASAR. So they're SARTEX. Oh, yeah. And as a result of being SARTEX, they were the trackers, they were the canine, the drone operators, and their security was law enforcement attached to them. Uh, and this isn't to, to bash what they're trying to do in any way. I know smaller agencies have to work with what they have, but that creates a lot of liability issues. Um, but even before we get to that, because it, you could go into the whole, you know, this is supposed to be a search and rescue track, and it turns out he's suicidal. And instead of having the, the courage or at that time the depression level to shoot himself, he elects to engage the team, hoping they're going to shoot him instead. Um, so what do you do when you place these people in that position? The liability created in that is, is huge altogether. But uh, we spent more time training the handlers up and being cross-trained. And initially, they were so used to working the dog. And I don't know where they got their dog training from. They're so used to letting the dog just take off and run. Um, and the problem they're running into, because the first yep. few scenarios we did were risk-wise, uh, that dog was not only pulling them forward uh, into some high-risk situations, some ambush, other things we set up just to make them aware of it, um, but also the dog, when he, he got off on the wrong track and they were following this dog as he's, you know, he's double time and they destroyed some of the best track evidence they had on the ground that would have indicated a different direction to travel altogether. Um, so there was no real control of those dogs. Now we spent a couple of days with them getting um, them in a habit of controlling the dogs, which I guess were whichever school they went to told them they, they shouldn't do that or couldn't do that. They need to let the dog run or they're going to hamper its efforts or its abilities. I'm not a dog guy, so I'm not going to get into that, but uh, yeah, it did destroy. Go that's ahead, not true. <laughs> okay. That's, well, yeah. that's good to hear. It, <laughs> that is it not true. destroyed everything. So, you know, we got them in the habit of reeling them back. 
And once they started to take the time to, again, now they're working this in SS style when they're moving that fashion, if they didn't have a full team, the guy who's watching the dog is not responsible. Like he's dedicated on the dog sign while he's also clearing the environment, which is not that safe. So we want him to have another set of eyes. So the, the guys running in pairs with him, were trying to scan that environment to the best of their ability based off that dog speed, which is too fast at first. Once he started reeling that dog in, we noticed that the handler was picking up tracks that the other guys were missing um, just because he happened to be looking down in the sector, whatever the, the reason may be. But because of his awareness was raised to pick up aerial sport along that sign line, uh, it created some more opportunities when his dog got off where he was able to bring the dog back. And I don't, he went into his own pattern for that area. Uh, the dog would pick up on, we had a hard direction change. Uh, and if you didn't have the ability to pick up on that spore, um, it would have lost opportunity, which means the time and distance that gap is, is growing substantially, so on and so forth. So uh, I've seen, you know, the pros and cons of this, but I, I've seen the importance of a canine handler having some visual acuity, uh, at least track aware. But I think it would be even better that they're trackers altogether. Um, the best case I've seen of this success, success wise, as far as a program is Kansas, uh, the Kansas highway patrol guys that come down here and train with me uh, at least once a year, uh, not for the canine side of things, but they are uh, tactical trackers and this is how we sustain them going through the programs, but they will also work their dogs. And I've been very impressed to see how a skilled trained handler who's track qualified, who knows what he's doing, knows when to apply that resource, how they work that. Um, it's a hell of a lot faster than I've seen any team running only visual trackers. Somebody that's been with us since the beginning of this entire program has been Arno from ALM Equipment out in Vegas. Arno does a fantastic job making suits, tugs, and sleeves. Uh, one of our favorite things that we use at HRD is the hidden sleeve from Arno, and I've got multiple suits, and so does Travis. We use them at Kennel all the time. ALMK9Equipment.com is where you can find it. Be sure to use the discount code WDRADIO for 10% off your first order. Tripwire Operations Group, man. What a great group of guys. It's an internationally recognized leading provider of product services and training for federal, state, and local law enforcement agencies and military units. Tripwire Operations Group is an ATF licensed explosive materials manufacturer, importer, exporter, and dealer with a wide range of explosive products to offer, including custom kits. These kits are great for detection canine imprinting, and they have three different kits to choose from. The use of all three kits combined creates a complete explosive threat package for canine teams. Be sure to check them out. If you go there to pick up your explosives, they will let you blow some crap up. Check them out at tripwireops.org. Lastly, this music that you hear uh, has been graciously granted to be used by us by Brother Deeg. He's a fantastic artist out of Louisiana. Uh, guy does a magnificent job. He's been through Tulsa a couple times and I've seen him live. Be sure to hit him up at brotherdeeg.net, D-E-G-E.net, uh, or go to Apple iTunes or Spotify or wherever and download and buy CDs. Be sure to hit him up, buy some shirts support the guy. The guy does a fantastic job and uh, he's a privateer kind of like we are. So brotherdeeg.net, D-E-G-E, hit him up. This episode and this entire series and this podcast is co-produced and co-owned by Alicia Brandt. Troll side. And so the search and rescue side, and it depends on where we're at in the country, like on in, in the West Coast and in the mountain states, it's really common for sheriff's departments to run search and rescue operations where we're at here, with the exception of Tulsa, 
sheriff's office, a lot of times it's, it's left to fire or, you know, state agencies or something else. So it, it, it's not always, it, it has a lot to do with, you know, what we suspect the person has done, how long they've been gone, which direction they've traveled, all of these other things. And then are, do we have a good use of force? Because if not, then they're like, well, I mean, we'll get them eventually eh, type thing more than anything else. So yeah, the dog's in the car, but there's a lot that goes into the decision to deploy the dog more than anything else. Yeah, I've never met a canine handler that's a visual tracking training guy. I'm sure there, I'm sure there are, um, you know, especially down on the border and stuff like that. But like here in Ohio, I've never, never heard of it, which, you know, makes sense. The thing with you guys and integrating the dogs, um, there are some guys that do train tracking as their specialty as far as training goes. And they do a lot of tactical tracking and stuff like that. And their big thing is training the proximity alert where the, the value of the dog is the early warning system that the dudes up here or over there based, based on the dog's reaction. The problem with that is it is um, really dictated by the wind direction, which yeah. with a visual tracker, that's, uh, you know, way less, I would assume, except for if it's a real bad wind, it might cover some things, but um, so I, I'm not a big that's that's the one thing I'm not a, a guy that always relies on. Like there's some trainers that say the dog should never get close enough that he bites the guy. That it should always be a um, a uh, uh, early warning system. And my argument always is if the wind is at your back, there is none. You'll the dog sometimes will track over top of the guy and turn around and snap back or pass him and have to snap back. You have to. Yep. Uh, so that's that's where. It has its advantages and disadvantages for sure. Having the dog out there. Um, I'm a big believer. Uh, Ted and I are exactly the same. I'm not training a single purpose detection dog to track that doesn't bite because what you end up happening, because it happened to me, I had a dog that didn't bite and we track people and I end up fighting uh, a person with a dog running around me, wrapping me in the leash, trying to lick my face, jumping on, doing nothing but trying to get me killed really and, and being in the way. That's why I will never, ever, train a single purpose tracking dog that um for law enforcement because the handler always said the same thing well we're just going to track old people and missing uh kids and things like that no you won't because you're a cop and you want to do good work and you're going to end up i'll let me try it this is just a domestic i'll try it with this guy then the next thing you know you're doing armed robbery suspects with your lab um which i don't believe is is um is a great option. Two things real quick before we go to the break. One, when you go back to, we're talking about projecting and leapfrogging your guys forward. I'm sure this is based on terrain and where you're at. If you're the guy that's doing the tracking and they have got a pretty good idea ahead and they start, um, are you getting picked up and moved forward or you just keep coming up behind the whole time? No, we tend to, so we have some, if it's a long-term long range, we have ATVs, other vehicles that are available to us. Um, we will get an extract picked up and actually brought over there uh, by whatever means possible. Now I have assisted in some agencies where we didn't have that and you had to hump the entire way. So the way we would do that is we actually will still try to preserve that line. We look at that topple map and figure out the best way uh, to get up there trying to preserve that. And the reason we do that, uh, we've had a few cases where that, track line after we leapfrog wasn't protected as a matter of fact it was search and rescue or excuse me a volunteer fireman who came in the next day this was a two-day trek we got pulled out in the night had to come back the next morning um he and that was a, a search and rescue type deal is what we were told initially at first one of those type cases 
And he ended up, uh, this fireman came in the middle of the night, ended up trying to track him himself, um, I guess, for the glory of him finding the guy. And what he did is contaminated the track line. So when we show back up the next day, he didn't find the person. Um, we end up tracking. This is actually the, the Creek County track. Um, when we did the backtrack, there were several things that uh, turn points where he had collapsed down to the ground, where he had taken off some clothes. Those things became uh, very important pieces of evidence for Oklahoma State Bureau of Investigations. OSBI ended up taking that over, and they asked us to do an investigative track uh, following this, what we believed to be at the time was an active track, uh, even though it turned out he was deceased. Uh, and of course, by that time, we realized it was a recovery instead of a rescue. Um, but it was very, very important to preserve that line. If we would have just walked straight up that track line to where they're at, not paying attention where we we're stepping, of course, you'd create all kinds of issues on, on that evidence. Um, and the reason it was important in that case, it turned out that this boy apparently got a hot dose of meth, um, something from one of his friends, and they needed the evidence showing some deterioration, which I'm not sure why they needed that, but there were actually very clear prints uh, points where he just claps down on the ground. You can see his handprints uh, where he's just, it's something that is a track when you see it, it's kind of locks in your mind that you're not going to forget it, but it's hard to explain it. Um, but it's one of those kind of tracks as you're tracking it, you see all of this on the ground and you're getting to the point where you are, um, you're trying to imagine what it was like when he created that. The more and more these type of tracks you do, you're able to switch into that mindset faster and faster. So when you get into a track where the person at the end of that trail is actually deceased, uh, it changes the whole atmosphere of that track and, and those pieces in the ground. They're not just normal pieces anymore. It's the last bits of that person's life. So in that case, it was destroyed because uh, someone tried to come up the line. Um, but there are those cases where you may not have that, that extract. You are going to have to find another way to get up to that point. Huge waste of time, though. So you always want to have that in your initial plan is, is having a plan ready to pick up your teams for that leapfrog. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. You're right. Making uh, and plus dude, if depending on how far they're like, yeah, we picked it up up here. You're like, son of a bitch. I am. Far yes. Away. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I am far. Oh yeah. So last question before the break and, and we'll just keep this, this part real quick because we could probably do an entire episode on this. Um, uh, I had assumed that you had started incorporating drones into your operations and you mentioned it earlier. Are you, um, are you now, uh, training trackers to be drone operators or drone operators to be trackers or is it just kind of if is just all part of the unit how, how are we working with this so initially we were only depending on oklahoma bureau of narcotics drones because the type they have have 180 type zoom they use them for surveillance and narcotic operations they're so far away you can't hear them whisper blades uh, they're not truly quiet. So the bad guy can still have them or hear them. So we wanted to use that resource because we're on an active track and we don't want the bad guy to know that there's an eye in the sky. Uh, we wanted that ability. OBN were the only ones with that ability. So within a short uh, order of activating the team, uh, we spoke with them. They wanted to be trained as trackers and vice versa. They ended up uh, incorporating drone support force. And at this point, we have uh, an MOU set up to where when we're going out, the tactical tracking unit, they have two guys that also deploy in support of us. And of course, the Matrice 210 has a thermal capability with the MSX capability. So when they're shooting through the wood line, it will actually outline firearms and, and other type of objects out there. So it's a great resource. Uh, and not only that, and again, you're right, this could go into a whole other side of this, but uh, they can project all that to a link. They give us the link in the tactical team. So as we're moving along that track, I can look down at my smartphone 
and see our position from their their drone because it's a live link. So there's a lot of benefits, uh, you know, in a, a, to that particular asset in and of itself. But we're not training our guys to operate them, though. Um, we are actually uh, we do have one guy within the team who does that. And that's different. That's for an under canopy deployment for clearing structures ahead of us before we have to expose our position. Uh, so a little bit different, but the full scale 107 part license. Um, those guys are support positions only because we use them on the outskirts of that area that we're working. Uh, so good question. There's actually an article I wrote up on this. I will shoot to Ted. Uh, as a matter of fact, I put it on SpearPoint's uh, uh, page. Ted, I don't know if you ended up seeing that, but that was yeah, the I stance I gave TCC last year over drone right. use. Awesome. Yeah, we'll, we'll definitely put a link to that in the, uh, in the show notes. Uh, we're going to go ahead and take a break here. Uh, um, throw in the commercials, commercial free on Patreon. Um, check it out. Uh, guys, there's a lot of good discount codes in there. We will be right back. We're going to get in a little bit of psychology of the runner. Um, and that's it. All right, guys, one of our best sponsors, one of our oldest sponsors are the Perkinsons down in Harmony, North Carolina at Highland Canine. We have a ton of people going down there for their handler schools their trainer schools, their full-on um, dog training schools where you learn police dogs, pet dogs, all aspects of it. They have amazing dogs for sale, classes for police, classes for police supervisors, pretty much a full gamut of anything you need in the dog world. Highland Canine definitely is the place to go check it out. Uh, I, I can't tell you enough about how great these people are. Everybody I know that's been there for their training say it is no joke. Um, check them out. Tacticalpolicek9training.com. Get your butt down there in North Carolina, man, and learn. Speaking of full service, it's no secret that we love the guys up in Colorado Springs at Ray Allen Canine Equipment. We use their products every single day. Their mission statement says it all. To be a world leader in the quality and innovation of professional canine equipment for police, military, Schutzen, ring sport to exceed our customers expectations to deliver on time every time at a fair price we full-heartedly believe that they have that they are true to that statement since it's our go-to one-stop shop for everything canine they literally have everything there except the damn dog you can get in the car but they have inserts they have hot poppers they have e-collars they have leashes they have regular collars harnesses they have muzzles they have some of the working dog draggers muzzles that end up starting their life in my living room so be sure to check them out, rayallen.com, and use the discount code WORKINGDOGRADIO written all the way out for 10% off. We really are so lucky and happy to be partners with uh, the guys down at Kinetic Dog Food. Um, the stuff that those guys are doing, man, it, it's so good. The ingredients that they have, we had them on a podcast. Uh, it was eye-opening. Listen to them talk about uh, the goofy stuff that goes into dog foods and in, in, in the business. They are honest. They are great people. Kinetic dog food. Um, they will drop ship you a pallet if that's your thing. If you've got that many dogs, they'll drop ship you a pallet anywhere you need it. Kineticdogfood.com, best in, in the industry and uh, definitely a personal favorite of Working Dog Radio. Kineticdogfood.com. Yeah, and if you're out on the east side of the country, uh, be sure to hit up Southern Coast Canine. They're a reputable canine kennel that does dog sales and training services located in sunny New Smyrna, Florida. 
Southern Coast Canine provides services worldwide from purchasing your next single or dual purpose working dog to handler courses and seminars. Southern Coast is a great resource to check them out. You know, the Heisers run a great ship down there and obviously the weather's nice. So if you live in a part of the country where it sucks half the time, the year weather-wise, that's where you go in the wintertime. That's how you get your admins, send them down, get, to them, get them to send you down there in, in the wintertime when it's nice and sunny. Uh, they do a fantastic job with trainers courses, decoy schools, uh, and handler courses for green dogs and finished dogs and retreads too. So be sure to hit them up at Southern Coast Canine, that's letter K number nine.com and get scheduled or go find you a dog. Dogtra. Uh, we post on our social media all the time, Ted and I using Dogtra. Uh, I, I love everything about them. Uh, I think the Dogtra 1900S is the gold standard for police canine. Um, it is a perfect collar. The remote size is perfect. Um, you got that. You can do the um, hands-free device if you want. Uh, their ball popper, their Dogtra YS 600 bark collar. I've got a drawer full of those at the kennel. Um, I want my place nice and quiet. The uh, bark collars solve a lot of the thrashing in cars. If you got that dog that spins up at training in the back of the car, get yourself a Dogtra YS 600 collar. One of our biggest sponsors, one of our biggest friends, big supporters of the podcast, dogtra.com. Uh, they do have a discount code too for us is WDR10 for 10% off a single item over $200. Don't mess around. Don't wait. Dogtra.com. All right, we're back. I hope nobody fast forwarded to those. You guys just don't do it. If you're on Patreon, you don't have to. You can just look at me and Eric staring at each other. Super weird. <laughs> anyway. We've been having a great conversation with Mick Bonet from the Tulsa County Sheriff's Office Tax Tracking Unit um, about the adult hide-and-go-seek game and about how to win. So um, we did a lot of um, sort of TTP stuff before the break, um, talking about where dogs fit, where they don't fit, talking about um, what mistakes are made, what mistakes don't, what you shouldn't make. Um, and some kind of the lessons learned. So one of the things that canine handlers routinely get asked to do is find people that have committed crimes very, very recently. Um, there are those isolated incidents and they always ended up on the discovery channel about dogs finding people from whatever, but that, you know, the, the vast majority of dogs in this country that are assigned to dual purpose work, mainly narcotics and then tracking and apprehension are fresh, um, violent crimes. I'm not going to say felonies, but they're typically fresh crimes that are, um, that are like, you know, that require the use of force, uh, from a dog on uh, a gram evaluation. And so with that, um, Mick, what I want you to talk about a little bit is the psychology of somebody that is running from that type of crime and what the mindset is and what our handlers should and should not be doing um, given a resource austere situation. All right. As far as canines go, I can't really get into what y'all should and shouldn't be doing based on right. their SOPs. Um, but as far as mindset goes, and this is something we spend a little bit of time on a tracking classes getting into, because I've seen officers do this as well. Um, so when they initially take off from that scene, we go through this whole fight, flight, or freeze mindset. Everyone knows that's it, got into the psychology of things. We see a lot of stupid things that are not common for a person. Um, so that's not where I'm typically trying to get into the mindset of the quarry. So, and I'm approaching this from the tracking standpoint. So when someone first 
you know, burst from the scene. And this depends on how fast response is. If they don't believe they've been caught, they're not on the run yet. Of course, that's going to be a different type of track line leaving the scene. Common collective. I expect reasonable type thinking there. If they're busting out the back door or they hear that response and they go into flight mode, uh, obviously, as opposed to fight because they're not standing their ground at that point. Uh, we tend to see, especially if we're close range, um, that uh, it's not reasonable type thinking. The reason that matters to me as a tracker is we're real big on trying to get into the mind of our quarry. So as I'm tracking somebody, I'm looking for likely lines of travel, especially in an urban environment, because I'm not always going to have tracking sun. So I have a saying I like to stick to to teach people getting into this on projection that the history of the person's track and the present moment tend to predict the future of where they're going. So it's like a, a north seeking arrow. As I begin to lay down tracks, that, that sequence of tracks establishes a baseline for an arrow that is gonna point to direction because we're predatory type animals. We look at what we're wanting to go, where we're wanting to go with the eyes in the front of our head and we move towards that point. So when I lose tracks, as part of my loss spore procedures that I do, I work my initial cast, not in a full 360, because that's a waste of time. And I'm sure I'll use scent patterns similar to what we do. I try to vector on that track, working either a linear check or a vector, uh, excuse me, a wedge check, so that I can eliminate those, those uh, exclude those routes that are close range, shut the time distance gap down faster on the most probable line. Now, that's because I'm in the mindset of the core at that time, which is a reasonable person. If that person is standing here and I look forward and I see a fence, but a 10-foot fence, I see an opening to the fence to my left, a reasonable person would walk towards the opening of that fence. So I'm going to gravitate to that direction. Again, this is when I don't have tracks. Or even sometimes if this is a fast track, I have just enough tracks that I've seen that point to that direction. I really don't care what's on the ground in between me and that object. I'm shooting up to it to close the time distance gap looking for confirmation. If I score great, I punch on from there. If I don't, I may have to go back to my last known and start casting. Uh, I don't always do that because I have to take in consideration the guy's speed of movement. There may not be as many tracks there or, or sign, or again, it falls into the medium. What kind of sign does he leave behind on that medium? Concrete, I'm not going to see much. So I might have to push even further. I mentioned earlier, I've gone as far as three football fields or 300 yards before I got confirmation. That whole track worked because I was going off of what I believe to be in the quarry's mindset. They were moving this way 100 yards back. I've lost track, but I have no reason to believe they've gone anywhere else. The terrain in that particular environment was funneling them this direction. I just assume they're moving that direction because I'm in the mind of the quarry. I'm trying to think like that person. So when someone bolts out the back of a, a business or wherever they just hit a house, so on and so forth, they're not necessarily thinking like that. They're thinking about someone who is in a, a state of panic or in that flight. So that same person who's reasonable, who would have taken a left to go to the opening of that fence would cross over 10 foot fence. I've seen officers do it in foot pursuits or in chase after a guy. And, and I've done it before, not necessarily that bad, but I've done it. I'll throw myself down. You're in that, that tunnel lock because of that stress level going up. We focus in on that target. So bad guy climbs over a huge fence. I go with him, jump down. And as I jumped down, I looked to the right and there was an open fence we both could have went through, but we didn't see it because we're in that tunnel lock. So that is going to affect how I track. So when you're initially showing up on scene, it's all about proximity of where this guy is at and what kind of pressure was put on him. Because if there was a lot of pressure, I'm not really expecting somebody to have 
um, rational thinking in the track. Of course, if the chopper's in the air, I'm expecting someone to be considerate or uh, cautious of being seen from the, the sky. So that's going to change where they go. So it's all about the type of pressure that's on them and the history of that track that's going to determine where I'm going to be scanning, where I'm anticipating threats, where I'm looking for my next piece of track. Um, case in point, and this kind of goes back to search and rescue, you can end up opening your eyes up to the importance of our tactical principles and awareness that, that would apply to K92 need to be in everything that we do. Uh, in this case, it was over at uh, Keystone Dam out in the west side of uh, uh, Tulsa County, Sand Springs. He's a 45-year-old male. He goes missing, and he has the mindset of a, a 12 or 13-year-old. Um, so I get brought in four hours after the fact uh, because there were some people tracking him. I did train these people. Um, it was one of the, the problems we have in just about everything. They weren't doing sustainment like they were supposed to do monthly. So they, they lost some acuity there. Uh, no big deal. The thing happens. Again, if I get a migraine, I have to pull up one of my guys to track. It's just the way it is. But sustainment, there's no excuse for that. I'm real big on my guys about you got to get out there and maintain the skill set or I'm not going to use you. In that case, they didn't have that skill set refined. They waited four hours before they called me. I show up and it's dark now, uh, which I wasn't too thrilled about. But regardless, I get out there and do the track. I find the track where they lost it and we start pressing on. We're tracking. I was actually a bit frustrated in this, that particular case um, because it's this mindset of a 13-year-old. I'm now in, in darkness and we had an opportunity of light. Uh, and we had other assets available, too, that should be brought in. And the reason they weren't in this case, like I said before, I've had some opportunities created because another resource failed. In that case, there were certain resources that were not called in because they wanted to have a tracking success story like Mick had. That kind of stuff pisses me off. You bring in the resources you have so that we can rescue that person or we can apprehend that person. Um, you, you don't wait for the glory shot. Anyhow, off my soapbox. So mm -hmm. on that case, as I'm tracking him, he's just walking normal. Um, he's not running. He's in a, a normal mindset. And you can just see from his track line, he's just exploring. Uh, a bright patch of yellow flowers. And again, this is nighttime. I'm shining my light around. I'm seeing this. And we're starting to get in a light mist rain. And you see the tracks go over to the, the yellow flowers. You see some kind of toy that washed up on the bank. He, he walks over there. Most people wouldn't care about that as an adult, but that's his mindset. So that allows you, as you track that person, to establish a baseline or a pattern. What are things that interest him? What kind of ground does he like to walk on? That's the kind of stuff I can use further down the line to send a support team. Or if I'm just continuing the track and I've lost the track and I'm looking forward in my environment to see what could have pulled him forward. So that history is very, very important to me. In this case, as we're tracking along, I recognize we find a spot where he's laying back in the ground. He's, he's basically stargazing. I see the finger imprints behind his head. It's very clear he's relaxed and he's just enjoying himself. He's not lost. He's wanting to do a walkabout for the most part. However, when we arrive at this point, I see a huge divot in the ground. It's some other evidence. This guy just took off running as fast as he could. The tracks have gone from 28 to 30 inches. Now we're pushing 45 to 50 inches. This guy is flying, and I don't understand why at the time. The further and further our track, before long, I realized that he has these, there's certain tracks we look for that what we call action indicators. So I'm beginning to find evidence where he's doing an about face, either a quick look over his shoulder to the right, or he's stopping, he's facing back, and then he bolts again. And it, it, it took me, I would say about two or 300 yards again before I realized we were his pressure. He was actually afraid of us because in his mindset, we were strangers and he went into stranger danger mode. So as a result, that pressure that was driving him to do something that was contradictive to his, his pattern, his mindset, his behavior was us. We were the source. So 
it's very important as trackers, and I believe it would be the same for canine, that as you're tracking, as you're following that person, you're looking for those uh, behavior pattern to be established. Now, it's not going to happen short range. If you're doing short tracks, I don't expect as much. We're trying to get into baseline, which I know is what your question started out as, but right. um, sometimes you got to give the rest of this. Uh, on a baseline pattern, again, I go back to that fight or flight. If this guy has major pressure on him and I'm working that dog, and let's say I've lost that descent, uh, I may not be going to the standard areas that I go to if this guy is under pressure. I may be looking for things that are not rational because he is he knows he's being pursued. Um, so just food for thought for the guys that uh, that's very, very important to look for that pattern if it's there. If it's not there, you need to consider, is this guy in fight or flight or freeze mode? And in a case where he's locked down, it's freeze. So one of the things that we talk about a lot in my handler schools <clears throat> is one of the information, one of the pieces of information you need to, to ask <clears throat> is always, do we know who this person is, right? Do, do we know, right? Like who this person is, like either from like the person that they committed the crime against or because of eyewitness identification or whatever it is. And that determines a lot of like what, like, do, like we know the person's from the area, this, that, and the other. And so that too can determine the mindset of how willing they are and to, to create distance. And um, I've had several tracks in this area with uh, our guys where they were tracking a known suspect that was a reasonably fresh track. And they said, look, I've been, I'm 30 minutes behind. He's hauling ass. He knows the area. He knows the direction of travel. He has a cell phone. He has communication and we're probably not going to catch him. I'm going to guess that he's, we're going to end this track on a, a road. He's going to get picked up and we're going to have to catch him on um, like surveillance video or something like a gas station, something like down the road or wherever it is. So, you know, they know who he is. And we've had two recently where that, that exact thing happened. They tracked, there's a convenience store robbery. They tracked, they found stuff along the flight path. They found stuff that he'd stolen. They found money. They found the clothing that he'd found. And then they get to a parking lot with a church and the dog turns around and is like, uh, sorry, nothing here. And it was about a 45 minute delay ish. Um, come to find out the next day, they had information from the church on surveillance video that the dude's girlfriend picked him up and sure as shit they sent deputies over to their house and dude was there in the house. And, you know, like they, they, and so versus somebody that's not from the area, they have no idea. And their instance is to bed down and hide. So um, I tell guys like, look, if you know who you're chasing and they're from the area and the set, the other, they're going to try and create as much distance as possible. So we're just talking about like going through the fence or going through the easiest path so that, you can create the most distance as possible. If you have somebody you have no idea or they're likely to run to an area that is extremely wooded or concealed, they may be trying to hide. And that determines a lot of how you're going to track and the speed of what you're going to track, how far the dog is going to be out in front of you, any of these other number of factors. So in your experience, does that, like you talk about pressure. So when we talk about, having a chase where somebody has been, you know, where they initiate a traffic stop that is a normal traffic stop and the dude runs because they find he's got warrants and then they terminate the chase because of safety. And then somebody sees him wreck out and the neighbors say he went that way into the woods. 
and it's a 20 minute delay. There was a ton of pressure there from law enforcement to push him to run and to push him to wreck out. And he runs. And because we have a license, we know who he is. We know he's got warrants. We know all this other shit about him. And at that point where, like what tactics would, and I'm, I know I'm generalizing a lot, but in that situation, what in an austere resource austere environment with a deputy that's got a trooper and somebody else another deputy what what advice would you give those guys you're actually spot on with our our standard sop on that if we're talking about time distance gap if we have information on where he could go my priority especially on a 20 minute is not going to go out the woods and let's do a track it's all right let's check out the house let's pull up a satellite image of this ground if he's going to come out and i'm working long range stuff right off the bat if i have other resources I would send them to the house or the place where we believe he's going to be going. Uh, and then I may inspect that area if I had those resources. But if I'm the initial one showing up, we have that information, we know we have a gap. I'm prioritizing other type of law enforcement work, not tracking, but investigation, um, doing the door knock and so on and so forth. And uh, it's, you know, you mentioned earlier too about surveillance. There's times where that is definitely paid off for us as to why we would come back and, and do a track, or maybe if we didn't have the information, why we'd spend a little bit more time than normal on the track is to establish that. Um, here a couple of weeks ago, if at least for you in the news, you would have saw um, we had someone shot a, a daughter and a mom up in North Tulsa. Yeah. Um, on that track, uh, so we ended up capturing the guys, all three of them, uh, that night. Uh, but they gave me some extra time to, it was just an ATV track, but they gave me extra time to figure out where this track went. And it was really, it wasn't about tracking an ATV all over the road or Turley, Oklahoma, where this occurred. It was about talking with neighbors too, working different points where you see an explosion of ATV tires with this guy's blasting it. You see that, you know, 100, 200 yards down the road, there's a store. Let's go check with the store, talk with them. Oh yeah, I saw this ATV go by. And then until you finally find surveillance. So uh, that's a big part of what we do too, as far as tracking an urban suburban environment is not so much the, the tracks on the ground, but it's working your other investigative skills uh, along with your visual track and your, or your canine. And that'd be my recommendation to them. Um, take that information. If we know where he's going, that's the, those are the, uh, the avenues, the areas you need to be working first. Now, if we don't have that information, I pull up, he crashes out, and he goes into the woods. I don't know anything about the area. Most of the areas where I patrol, eventually you get to know your beat, of course, and we know this ahead of time. Let's say we don't know. Um, I would take the time to pull up a satellite imagery of that house, or excuse me, of that terrain. Um, I run several different apps because I need to see that terrain in spring and fall. Uh, sometimes Apple and Google Maps have it, sometimes they don't. So I stick to all trails maps because it'll allow me to see the spring. But as I zoom in closer on the map, it ditches the leaves and I see a picture of the satellite from the satellite during the fall. And that's important because we'll see those trails underneath that canopy. We'll see structures, things that once the guy gets in that area and he doesn't have the pressure, he's going to gravitate towards. And, and I'll start to use that. Um, but apart from having known information, I'm always going to work that as they cough first before I get out there and start stalking this guy, like the movie, the hunted Tommy Lee Jones, like you mentioned earlier. Mm -hmm. So um, I'm a city kid, right? Uh, we don't have, <laughs> I mean, where I live is not in the city so much, but I, uh, my law enforcement's in the city. We don't have um, dudes that, that have the ability to go out and sustain, you know, any, any type of time out in the, uh, out in the woods or anything like that. And you talked about earlier trying to trying to figure out the path of where your guy's going in the speed based on his loadout. Do you guys ever come across some dudes out there that have a go pack and that are 
career criminals that can snatch a bag and gone out in the woods with, uh, you know, I don't know, food, extra clothes or anything like that? Uh, not loadout bags. Typically what we run into is we have a, a lot of homeless in the outskirts of Tulsa and they've got backpacks on. They got other things that they're carrying because they're homeless. Uh, we actually had such a rise in, in sexual assaults in the area that Tulsa PD ended up coming to us to assist and searching the woods and mapping out all the location of our, our homeless camps. Um, and they'd go out there and actually got buckle swabs of a lot of those people because of the spike in assaults and sex crimes in the area. Um, so that's more along the lines of, of the homeless things they carry out here, if that's your, your criminal. Now, any other time, it's not a loadout bag. What we tend to see is your typical Nike sling bag, and it's a change of clothes. Because <laughs> mm-hmm. um, they, they run layers. They're thinking about, you know, obviously, first time you saw him when you pass him, he's a full ninja with a black hoodie and black pants. Next time he has bright yellow or something Nike clothes on. Because they do take that kind of stuff in consideration on ditching clothes. But um, OPSEC-wise, we typically don't talk about this, but this is something that is very important. Important. Uh, and your canine guys need to take this consideration too. In most of our cases, um, they'll always ditch a layer of their clothes or change clothes. Very rarely do they bring a change of shoes. So when we're looking at those surveillance videos, we always take note, especially of their shoes, not so much of their clothing, because we have to take consideration they're probably going to ditch it. Um, but their, their treads, the wheels that they're running in, that's something that they tend to keep with them. So the tread pattern becomes important. I may not know the tread, I see that it's a Nike, you know, shock in the back. I know a typical idea of what that pattern looks like. So that's, that's, uh, becomes an important point. It's always uh, shoes. Even when Eric worked in the fucking gang and the drug unit up in Canton, you always had to have shitty shoes on. Yeah. We, yeah. You had, to, <laughs> you had to look like a dirt bag. So, um, well, that's a good segue to my, la- my last question. And it's, um, snow. <laughs> what are the truths and the misnomers about snow and tracking? We have guys that say, why would I track with the dog or follow the footprints? And um, I'm like, you should try it because, well, first of all, we're in a city. You, you, you track footprints and you think you're just going to stay with that one. You're, you're going to come across a whole bunch of others. But what are some of the myths about it? Uh, myths on losing track? On no, just on tracking countermeasures. On, on tracking with the snow, you just, you don't, you know. It's easy. Just follow the footprints. That's it. That's all you need. Uh, I, I'd say the only thing that's that's unique to snow people need to be aware of track wise is because we don't have as much room clearance or foot clearance for our feet in our normal movement. Um, we tend to generate more sign that looks like a runner, uh, looks like this guy's carrying more weight than he should be. All of that stuff is just it's typical action indicators from snow from our primary impact point or terminal point is where we move we're tending to gouge the ground more so on and so forth so uh, when you get someone kind of new to it and i do agree with you don't assume just because you can see the tracks in snow the entire track line is going to be in snow you need to bring your assets with you same thing i say about long range tracks bring your spare battery because you don't know how long you're going to be out there bring your extra battery or excuse me your extra flashlight for the same reason same for snow that dog is an asset um, you need to get out there, if, even if you can see the tracks, and get your four-legged working with you. Uh, but anyhow, in those cases, you're going to see evidence uh, on the ground that looks like this person is in flight, looks like this person is carrying something, is loaded out, and, and that's not the case. And, and really the best way I can tell you to, to get it used to what that sign looks like, and this is what we do in our tracking classes for whatever is available in the area. You don't always have snow in classes, of course. Is just get out there, lay your own track lines, and work it. Lay your track line while you're running. Uh, while you're walking with packs and start seeing the differences. And that's how we start to build a mental file 
of what different spore lines or track lines look like. Uh, that's a big part of track. And, and just to jump back, sorry not to take this any longer, but you mentioned urban environments, uh, agencies that don't have a whole lot of woods. There's still a relevance here, and so much so that we ended up creating a custom course specific to jurisdictions that only have urban environments, and it's just on urban tracking. Uh, as a matter of fact, we just got Tulsa Police Department Street Crime Unit um, to ask us to come out this coming March 2021 to introduce them to that. Uh, now, that it's, it's based off elements in the woodland environment. Some things obviously apply are going to be faster in a woodland environment as opposed to urban, but the same techniques and tactics we use in the woods will also work in an urban environment, so much so that we went ahead and uh, customized a course for those officers so they can put it to use. Uh, anyhow, go ahead. Sorry. No, no, no. Yeah. So speaking of which, where can we um, catch up with you? So there's Nollet and then there's Spearpoint training, right? So talk about each yeah. one of those, what, what each one of those entities are. So Spearpoint Training Group, uh, a few years ago, I ended up doing a whole lot of training over the years from 2007 to uh, 2017. All of my training was free through the sheriff's office. The sheriff's office was funding it. Um, they looked at that as a duty assignment. Uh, we ended up getting another captain that came into our training department, and he felt that the training that I was providing should be only for uh, specialized units and tactical teams. So he didn't feel that the, uh, the, the typical line officer on the street really needed to have this information, uh, which of course I disagreed. Um, but I can also see he had some OPSEC issues, operational security issues as well. Um, so in order to still facilitate that training, get it out there, uh, one of my, my friends on the sniper team said, hey, why don't we go ahead and start a company up so we can get this training out. Uh, and that's what gave birth to Spearpoint is uh, two snipers talking about, hey, we don't want to stop this training. We want to still get it out to as many officers as we can. Uh, and it gave birth to it. So we've done good over the years, work military and law enforcement. Um, our mission is to, obviously we've got to pay, or excuse me, we've got to charge for these classes because I'm having to give up duty assignment time. Um, but our mission really is about getting that training out there, uh, which is why we, we try not to really charge much, um, just basically enough to account for a day loss of work or a day loss from a part-time security job. Uh, if I had the ability to continue teaching and not have to charge a single dime and the office not get in trouble with my agency uh, without in a heartbeat, I would do it because I believe so much in this, this life saving skill. Now with it ended up that intent, that motive, what it gave birth to is nail it. So someone else I've worked, uh, I've had a good relationship with in the U.S. Marshal Service is Ty Cunningham. Ty Cunningham ran the first uh, International Society of Professional Trackers. It ended up dying at one point. Um, and, and one of the reasons he believed that that happened, or at least what was conveyed to me, is they opened up the door to all trackers, animal trackers, and everyone alike. And it grew substantially. And unfortunately, it no longer had a focused uh, section for law enforcement, animal track and hobbyist tracker. And it also started to control what kind of information they could put out there because of operational security issues on countermeasures, track deception, how to lose a team. Um, so the training was getting twisted to some of the stuff that was available. Um, I think ISPT is being brought back up from the animal tracking world and, and hobbyists. Uh, I just can't tell you much about it because Ty ended up leaving. So Ty and I have a conversation. Uh, he retired from the U.S. Marshal Service and was running another school, the Government Tracking Institute, uh, which was teaching the, the scout tracking program from the U.S. Marshal Service. And uh, we got to talking, decided, you know what, why don't we, to fix the things that were an issue in the International Society of Professional Trackers, 
why don't we start a new association up specific to first responders and law enforcement? Um, a big problem that we have, and anyone in this track and or anyone in a track and organization will be quick to confirm. Everyone has over the years has backstabbed other instructors or other schools for those DOD contracts. It oh, pays out mm. big money. Well, it's like canine. Oh, that's yeah, cool. I, I guess oh, it's, that's it's interesting. The same. So, <laughs> so uh, weird. Uh, case in point, I had to. They brought me off for. I went into a program for the U.S. Uh, Marine Corps out of Camp Pendleton. It was a twenty-five hundred dollar week. So five hundred dollars a day just to do the tracking on the military side of house, compared to law enforcement part time, where we get paid twenty-five, fifty bucks an hour. So it's kind of a no-brainer on the money side, but of course that's created a bloodbath, and it's ridiculous because we've lost good relationships fighting over contract money so much. So if you can, you should put a link in that post that I created on the true mission of NAILIT because. A short time after we created it and started to bring in all these members, we were accused of trying to just push Spearpoint, which is not the case at all. It's completely separate. <laughs> so I created that post about this is our intent. Uh, we're not about the money. We could care less about the money. That's it's not what it is. And that, it was a huge article because that's how big of a deal it's become. Uh, just trying to build the bridges. Uh, and, and it's just fighting off that mindset that, well, you're after my DOD contracts. You know, I don't give a hell about your DOD contracts. I want us to come together to get this training into more law enforcement hands as possible because it saves lives. It can get that violent offender off the streets. When you've lost that track with your other resources, hey, this could help you reacquire that track so you can find, fix, and apprehend that, that uh, felon. So it's very important to us. So in time, and it's only taken, uh, what I'd say, six months, five months since we started it. Everyone has come to nail it and join all the big organizations because they, in time, begin to recognize what we're trying to do is really bring the schools together. Not about, let me correct that. It's not about bringing schools together to control who gets what contract. It's about bringing trackers together and people with a mission in mind and heart to help law enforcement by giving them the, school, the skills and the tools they need uh, for us through tracking uh, to benefit agencies so they can serve and protect more effectively. Um, so it has really grown. Uh, we are just beginning to open up pro shop to get obviously stuff out there because we're the type of personalities that want to, we want to patch. We want to shirt that, you know, uh -huh. to know, so we belong to this just the way we are. Oh, yeah. So we're trying to make that happen as fast as possible. But uh, uh, ultimately what we see happening here uh, is we already have the American sniper association and the national tactical the National Tactical Officers Association in support of what we're doing. Uh, and so what we have through that support uh, is future. Again, we got to get these standards lined out got to get it established is nail it becoming the NTOA or the ASA of trackers in the nation. Now we really only intended on focusing on the United States. And I would say over the past month, month and a half, because as people have seen the direction we're going, uh, the website, when you go into the members area, you'll see there's a whole lot of resources we've been getting to add. Now that they've seen that come to blossom, they're asking us, hey, will you go ahead and go international? Will you open up the door mm -hmm. so we can join from Europe and from Scotland? And I've, we've really been impressed. I, I was about to say I, all of us have, that we have so many law enforcement officers around the world that we're looking for an association for their particular skill set or community to come together so they can communicate. They can share stories. They can share at directions, case files. And that's what it's all about. Um, so I highly encourage everyone to go to nailit.org. If you're not active law enforcement, uh, it is specific as far as membership goes. However, we also are considering and taking on people that are assisting and training in that environment or they're part of first responders, search and rescue, anything where there's a professional application, that skill set, uh, we're going to open the door to those people. You know, 
we started this episode by saying, um, you know, canine guys are kind of like the Swiss Army knives for fucking for law enforcement. They find drugs, they find bombs, they find people, they do whatever else. And I tell my canine handlers all the time, you can't bite them if you can't find them. And it's a hugely, uh, a hugely like offset skill for a lot of people. So I, I think you've done a massive justice to the skill of visual tracking and combination of combining canine with tactical tracking and a tactical SWAT unit and the importance of the integration of the two. And uh, yeah, so if for everybody listening, we'll put nail it and we'll put um, spear point in the show notes. So when you're listening to this, you're listening to this on Google or iTunes or wherever, or on YouTube, you'll have all the links to it. You can go straight to it. And if you want making the guys from any of those organizations come out and do a school, that's how you get a hold of them right there. So I would assume, Mick, that's the easiest way to get a hold of you guys is through those websites, yes, right? Sir. Yes, okay. that's correct. Yep, you got, got an Eric. Instagram page too. Yeah, there you go. There it is. I don't know if I can see with that light very well, but there no, it, follow that, right now. That sucks. So we can't see yeah, it, Eric. So <laughs> SP Training Group. SP yeah, we'll Training Group on uh, on um, Instagram. So Yeah, yeah, we'll put it up. You need uh, more followers. We got to blow this thing up here. Bro, that's oh, I appreciate show. that. 163 yeah, yeah. come on man we get we, we get <laughs> yeah. you a, a thousand by the end of this episode so. yeah that's for sure um so mick Arell, uh, eric where where are you besides canton uh, my bedroom no um right. i am at van s canine on instagram van s canine academy on facebook uh, working dog radio on youtube um hrd police canine training on everything is where we're at yeah um, what about you buddy uh, Torchlight Canine, letter K number nine, Tether underscore Summers on Instagram and uh, Facebook, Torchlight Canine, Torchlight is one word. Uh, and then also uh, HRD and all the normal stuff working on radio on Facebook. Also, we're going to be doing well, it's past the point, so it doesn't matter mentioning the, the Christmas giveaways, but people got some cool shit from Christmas yeah. giveaways during, uh, during, <laughs> everyone <laughs> during was Christmas. happy. Everyone was happy. So, um, yeah. So Merry Christmas, Happy New Year. And hopefully this is episode. <laughs> this is uh, this is being aired in 2021. So uh, filmed in 2020 and and uh, <laughs> aired in 2021. So hopefully we're uh, still alive in a better place. <laughs> Mick, this has been uh, fantastic. You know, um, our mutual friends here in Tulsa, you know, uh, our Russian friend and um, our friend who now lives in Dallas, you know, I, it, we have talked about doing this episode. I talked to Eric about this like a year ago, mm-hmm. and um, I, I'm finally glad we caught up and got to do this. And because it was exactly what I thought it was going to be, and people are going to listen to this episode more than once and take a shit ton of notes. So, Me. well, yeah, you, yeah, I and, will uh, over yeah. and over again. <laughs> I'm well, telling sure. you right now, I'm going to get the Chris and the association guys to watch it and try to maybe get them out there to learn some of this tracking stuff, man. Or shit, just bring Mick and the kids. Well, up. Vice versa, and it's something I've been trying to to get with you, Ted, is is to get the uh, training program out there to make them aware. Obviously, you met uh, Sergeant Ernie Mendenhall. Uh, yep. bringing the dog out there uh, they're definitely going to need your your training and spin up on that i'm not sure how that came about um, but i believe it's moving forward is better than not moving at all um, so we had a good talk about you and he is going to be reaching out there to to get spun up and, and get the information he needs um, but it, i think it's very important that if we're not going to get handlers trained up 
as trackers, we at least need to build the bridge up so trackers and handlers can work better together. Um, out of all the time I've done this, and I've, I've got to where most of the TPD guys, especially on SWAT, they knock and track. They've called me out to do things for them. I've only had one case on patrol, though, where their canine actually said, hey, you know what, because you know the deal. They ground everyone, tell them to get in their car. Yeah. Um, they came up and said, do you mind getting out of the car and, and walking with us to look for tracks? <laughs> only once. Um, but I mean, that's better than it's never happened ever in the history of office before. So at least we're moving a direction, yeah. but, uh, I, it's all about relationship and capabilities and, and being able to see that back and forth. So I really want to set that up with you and teach you. I don't know if you did hear or part of the conversation, DOC came up to me and asked for help establishing their own, uh, TTU East and West. Yep. So we have theirs being formed up and there's one other, uh, down in the Southeast, uh, Love County, some other agencies that are part of it, they're yeah. also setting up their their own TTUs. So uh, I had no idea that establishing TTU was going to do this. I, I thought we were going to train some people in the tech teams to do it. Uh, and to be honest, when they said, hey, we want to set this up, I didn't think that their agencies would support them because it took time for me to get to where I'm at. And, uh, you know, they're getting within a year or two because they're using our success stories or they're saying, hey, Tulsa County's got here with it. Uh, and it, it sped the process up for them. So very surprised by it, but also just uh, just humbled at the same time that we've got to play that role in it. But I think the next part of that, that journey is definitely getting canine trackers and drone support integrated because those three assets working in tandem, I think, are, are the cutting edge future of, of either manhunts or rescuing people before they end up deceased. Yes, it is winning adult hide and seek for That's sure. That's right. <laughs> 100%. So, Mick, man, I appreciate it. And, uh, yeah, this has been a fantastic interview. I think this will be one of our good ones. Our, the last one we did something like this was the uh, perimeter containment with uh, the tactical air support guy from LAPD, and it was listened to a lot. Oh, yeah, very well received. In the hundreds of thousands of downloads, and it still gets a shit ton of downloads. And this is going to be another one of those that people are going to listen to, people that aren't even fucking dog people. So, um, yeah, man, I really appreciate it. This has been this one that's been on the list for a while, so uh yeah um again thanks well, i appreciate the invite most yeah. definitely I appreciate you be safe please buddy yeah somebody that's been with us since the beginning of this entire program has been arno from alm equipment out in vegas arno does a fantastic job making suits tugs and sleeves uh one of our favorite things that we use at every hrd is the hidden sleeve from arno and i've got multiple suits and so does travis we use them at kennel all the time almk9equipment.com is where you can find it. Be sure to use the discount code WDRADIO for 10% off your first order. Tripwire Operations Group, man, what a great group of guys. It's an internationally recognized leading provider of product services and training for federal, state, and local law enforcement agencies and military units. Tripwire Operations Group is an ATF licensed explosive materials manufacturer, importer, exporter, and dealer with a wide range of explosive products to offer, including custom kits. These kits are great for detection canine imprinting, and they have three different kits to choose from. The use of all three kits combined creates a complete explosive threat package for canine teams. Be sure to check them out. If you go there to pick up your explosives, they will let you blow some crap up. Check them out at tripwireops.org. Lastly, this music that you hear uh, has been graciously granted to be used by us by Brother Deeg. He's a fantastic artist out of Louisiana. Uh, guy does a magnificent job. He's been through Tulsa a couple times and I've seen him live. Be sure to hit him up at Brother Deeg, 
degee.net, D-E-G-E.net. Uh, or go to Apple iTunes or Spotify or wherever and download and buy CDs. Be sure to hit him up, buy some shirts and support the guy. The guy does a fantastic job and uh, he's a privateer kind of like we are. So brotherdeeg.net, D-E-G-E, hit him up. This episode and this entire series and this podcast is co-produced and co-owned by Alicia Brandt. You got your reasons and I got my wants. Still got that feeling, but I'm too Working Dog Radio was graciously granted permission to use this music by Brother Deeg. Be sure to check him out at brotherdeeg.blogspot.com. That's spelled brother, D-E-G-E, dot blogspot.com. Be sure to buy him a beer at Amazon, iTunes, or CD Baby, or anywhere you stream your music. Working Dog Radio was edited and co-produced by Alicia Brandt. Um, so in a resource austere environment or department, what advice do you have for canine guys? That's a loaded question. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> well, I, <laughs> you first, you first met Ted, right? It's not the first time, right? You met <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Oh, yeah. <laughs>